You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, WORT's Labor Radio Show takes a look at what auto workers won in their new contracts at the big three automakers. For the past several weeks, analysts and pundits were crying that our union was going too far, that we were demanding too much. We didn't listen to them, and we never let up. Then, there's been an alarming rise in crimes against postal workers. Letter carrier Doug Jaynes tells the Labor Exchange radio show, enough is enough. I've carried in some not-so-nice neighborhoods, and there'd always be somebody, you know, I'd pull up, and somebody would pop out of the door of the door of the, a building and just sit there and, and watch. They were the eyes and ears of the neighborhood. From America's Workforce Radio, we'll hear why workers at the Baltimore Museum of Art have joined the wave of museum workers organizing unions. It became clear that we needed a seat at the table. We had no real avenue to speak to some of our concerns as workers. And unionizing is an incredible way to really to create the table at which you then have a seat. And our final segment comes from Union Talk, the podcast from the American Federation of Teachers. This week's topic is how to rescue teachers from beyond burnout. It's so often, I find, like well-being work happens where someone sends out a PDF and they're like, here are some strategies that you should try on your non-existent free time. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people in the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Sandy Park, a retiree from both American Federation of Teachers and AFSCME. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. The UAW reached a tentative agreement with General Motors Monday, ending the strikes which began on September 15th. Frank Emsbach has the story. Over the next two weeks, UAW members at General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis will vote to accept or reject the tentative agreements reached by the union at each automaker. Sean Fain, president of the UAW, assessed the UAW victory this way. Once again, we have won several astonishing victories. For the past several weeks, analysts and pundits were crying that our union was going too far, that we were demanding too much. We didn't listen to them, and we never let up. The result is one of the most stunning contract victories since the sit-down strikes in the 1930s. Of particular importance in our area is the agreement by Stellantis to reopen the Stellantis plant in Belvedere, Illinois. Fain described the importance of the Belvedere win. We've done the impossible. We have moved mountains. We have reopened an assembly plant the company closed. And it's not just Belvedere. Going into these negotiations, 
the company was explicit. They wanted to cut 5,000 jobs across Stellantis. We were looking at a net loss of jobs. Our stand-up strike changed that equation. Not only did we not lose those 5,000 jobs, we turned it all the way around. By the end of this agreement, Stellantis will be adding 5,000 jobs. UAW achieved similar wage, COLA, employment, and benefit gains in the Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis contracts. Fain outlined some of these gains as he described the GM contract. GM salaried workers will be provided general wage increases for the first time in our history. In fact, this will be the most lucrative contract for salaried GM workers in their history. For our hourly workers, it's the same story. The starting wage for our assembly workers in our new GM agreement will increase about 70% with estimated cost of living from $18 an hour to over $30 an hour. And the top wage will increase about 33% from $32.32 an hour to $42.95 an hour. And we have slammed the door on having a permanent underclass of temporary workers at General Motors. At ratification, all temporary workers with at least 90 days of employment will be converted to full-time seniority employees. We also brought another group of workers into our agreement who we were told could never be brought in. All TM sales workers will now be under our master agreement. The significance of this cannot be overstated. Right now, the future of our industry is being defined. We stopped GM's race to the bottom. I don't care if you build combustion engines or electric vehicle batteries. These workers make these vehicles and this company run, and they will be recognized and compensated justly for it. But the impact of the UAW victory goes beyond the big three. Fain outlined a strategy to maximize working class power. We went to each of the big three and proposed an expiration date of April 30th, 2028. We did this for several reasons. First, this allows us to strike on May Day or International Workers Day. It's a call to action. We invite unions around the country to align your contract expirations with our own so that together we can begin to flex our collective muscles. If we're gonna truly take on the billionaire class and rebuild the economy so that it starts to work for the benefit of the many and not the few, then it's important that we not only strike, but that we strike together. Secondly, we demanded a longer contract because one of our biggest goals coming out of this historic contract victory is to organize like we've never organized before. When we return to the bargaining table in 2028, it won't just be with the big three, but with the big five or big six. The impact of the UAW victory is already being felt beyond the big three. Toyota announced Tuesday that it raised the wages of all factory workers by amounts ranging from $2.94 an hour to $3.70 an hour, resulting in a maximum wage of $43.20 per hour. I'm Frank Emsmack for Madison Labor Radio. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town. The miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down. We won't pull another pillow out another ton or lift another finger till the union we have won. Stand up, boys, let the 
bosses know. Turn your buckets over, turn your lanterns low. There's fire in her hearts and fire in her soul, but there ain't gonna be no fire in the hole. This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. Our guest today is Doug Jaynes with the National Association of Letter Carriers. Welcome to the Labor Exchange, Doug. Thank you for having me. The rally on Tuesday basically said enough is enough. And that's what we would like to talk today about and uh, give you my perspective as a letter carrier here in Denver um, and as a member of the NALC, the Colorado State Association and Branch 47 of the NALC. Really going back to COVID uh, in 2020, uh, things changed dramatically for us. We were part of the community. We were part of their the families that we um, delivered to. They knew us, we knew them, and we were on a basically a set schedule. You know, we left the office at 9.30. You know that uh, at noon I would be by the 1900 block of Leiden. At uh, two o'clock I'd be over on Monaco. And so it was, they knew when to expect us. When COVID hit, one, we did not get the interaction with our customers at all. Uh, we were the only ones out on the street. Very eerie sense. Um, and the thing that struck me the most was the faces in the windows. You have the kids up, pressed up against the window, waving and, um, and all, smiling and happy that they got to see somebody else besides their siblings. And two, there were the parents in the back that were showed a true sense of concern for what was going on. They understood the implications of what the pandemic was uh, bringing on. That affected carriers also and postal workers. 35% of postal workers uh, resigned, retired from the postal service during that time. Uh, a lot of them, you know, the ones that retired, they found the time to do it. It was not uh, worth their efforts to be an essential employee anymore. And so every day, somebody, we were assigned other routes to help deliver. Sometimes it was four hours, sometimes it was the whole route. So we would be working 16-hour days. Um, I, for one, and most of us, chose to deliver the other route first because we're not sure where we're going um, and wait to the and deliver our own routes at night and in the dark because we had an idea of how how to get it done where 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 it was safe and where it wasn't this screwed up the scheduling this screwed up the idea that hey i know when my mailman's going to be here no one was out looking for looking for us they were just happy to get the mail when they woke up the next morning I was no longer mailman Doug. I was just the mailman's finally here. When I first started, um, Social Security Day was the high, was the day, was the only day that we had to look out for who was walking around us. Um, way back then, all the Social Security checks came in blue envelopes and very highly recognized. And th that was the only day that we had to be careful and have our heads on a swivel. Uh, they were still coming up and stealing uh, the mail, the Social Security. 
um, but only a couple hundred a year uh, would would be affected. Yeah. And so what you're saying, like assaults, or I guess there's been dangers to this work um, the whole time. But what you're yeah. seeing is is a market increase in it, and in a completely different sort of feel to to the way that you're you know interacting right now. Yeah. We our heads are always on our swivel now. We're not out looking for the kids. We're not looking for what's going on at individual homes. We're looking out for ourselves. And because we, I've carried in some not so nice neighborhoods and there'd always be somebody, you know, I'd pull up and somebody would pop out of the door of the door of the a building and just sit there and, and watch. They were the eyes and ears of the neighborhood. They knew when we were going to be there. They knew when uh, the schedule was, and you felt the you felt that comfort. They were out look. They were looking out for you. Uh, this does not happen when you don't know when the mailman's going to show up. And like I said, people are taking advantage of that. Uh, every single day, our heads are on the swivel, uh, and. It's not just that they're after one thing, they're after everything. Um, in some cases, including our lives. And so in the last uh, three years, there's been over 2000 uh, attacks on letter carriers. Market very uh, much of a spike because of that lack of community awareness of what's going on. It's a lack of uh, understanding how the the importance of and the role that the postal service plays in in American life. I'm your host Robert Lindgren with the Colorado AFL CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. Our guest today has been Doug Jaynes, a letter carrier with the National Association of Letter Carriers. Now back to America's workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to the city of Baltimore. And joining us on our live line is Leela Grothy. And she is an associate curator of contemporary art at the Baltimore Museum of Art, where she is an active member of her union, a relatively new union. And we're seeing a lot of organizing at museums. In fact, uh, I counted 29 states have uh, organized museums, and it's growing. Leela, welcome to America's Workforce. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Is that right? You did. <laughs> yeah, thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. You know, I always like to get acquainted with uh, with new guests, so, so talk to me about yourself, how you got involved in museums, and uh, how the organizing began. Sure, yeah. So um, I've been working in uh, in the arts, um, in the visual arts, really specifically for, I guess, about 20 years. Um, and I've been at the Baltimore Museum of Art. I'm coming up on my four-year anniversary, so I haven't been here that long, um, although uh, I think it's longer than it feels. There were a couple of weird years in the middle of those last four years, if you know what I mean. So um, Yeah. Yeah, and then um, I learned, actually, that some unionizing effort was underway. Um, I think I learned about it in summer of 21, and the unionizing effort, and the conversations internally must have started around spring of 21. 
and we first went public uh, with our effort to unionize in September of 21, and then had a bit of a long wait before we got to our vote, and we voted in favor of unionizing on July 14th of 2022. We recently conducted a survey of our bargaining unit to see how folks are, are doing, and 86% of our surveyed members say they've considered leaving the BMA because of that low pay, which, you know, that's gutting. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, there were tense working conditions after the, the COVID-19 pandemic, but there are also other aspects of the working experience that needed improvement as well. And it became clear that we needed a seat at the table. We had no real avenue to speak to some of our concerns as workers. And unionizing is an incredible way to really to create the table at which you then have a seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to have a seat at the table. Yeah, no doubt about yeah. that. The museum was hanging on to, quite frankly, some archaic notions of who uh, should be in a bargaining unit and uh, specifically security staff. There is an old sort of union busting policy that's, I think, 100 years old that states that, union, that uh, security staff should not be a part of unions. I think it has something to do with security being brought in to uh, bust up picket lines or something about security being required to protect management. None of those things are um, really what we anticipate being the situation at an art museum and our security protect artwork. So um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a long process of convincing. We had the city deeply involved in favor of our unionizing effort, the mayor reached out and said, I want you to do this quickly. Um, we had other, other uh, members as well on the board that were in favor. We eventually got there, but it, yeah, I, I wish it had happened a little bit sooner because we are now in uh, the first contract negotiating phase, and that is also a very long phase. Oh, yes, so, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my next question. Um, are, are they playing real real hardball there to get that first contract? You know, we're really far apart right now, um, but that doesn't mean that we won't get somewhere. They are willing to meet with us pretty regularly, and the overall sort of attitude at the table is it's, it's kind of pleasant. That doesn't mean we agree, though. Uh, there are some real sort of fundamental priorities that we don't agree on, and it's interesting because not just the BMA, but all cultural institutions often present themselves as these progressive entities. And um, it's, it feels counterintuitive that you do have to argue for so many of the aspects of, of this work of unionizing. And at the BMA, our mission statement actually states pretty clearly that they dedicate themselves to social equity in every decision, they say, from art presentation to interpretation and collecting, but also to the composition of the board, to the staff, and the volunteers. And that's like publicly stated, that is their mission. So a core you, function of unions is to ensure that everybody has equitable access to opportunities and resources and rights. Leila Grothy joining us on our live line today, and she is an associate curator of contemporary art. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. Hi, everybody. This is Union Talk, and I'm Randy Weingarten. This fall, we released a report called Beyond Burnout, 
which identifies research-based solutions to improve the chronic levels of stress and burnout affecting educators. And it shows what can happen when these solutions are put into practice. And for those of you who don't you know, say, is this really an issue? Look, more two-thirds of, of, of educators have said to us this is an issue, far more than any other profession in the country. So these guests that I have today, they're not going to simply talk about what's wrong. They're going to tell you the problem solving that they and others have done. And that's why I'm so grateful to have them. But this is the stat before I introduce people. This is the stat that just blows my mind. So we had from 88% people basically saying, I'm really exhausted. We need to, I, I don't know what to do. To after the work we did, 93% of the participants believed that the work, the strategies that are in this Beyond Burnout report, believed that those strategies made their job feel more sustainable. And 94% said it helped improve well-being. So that's why I wanted Tyler Hester, who's the founder of Educators Thriving, and Amy Such, who's a school psychologist, to actually be with us and talk to us about this because they are leading the way in problem solving and in finding solutions to make sure these amazingly valuable, wonderful educators and, and human beings stay in our profession. I think there's a, a data point that it was particularly sobering to me. 47% of people agreed with this statement. My administrator takes my concerns seriously. So less than half of people feel like their administrator takes their concerns seriously. I think that as a society, we systematically neglect the experience that educators are having. Basically, the, the main way we do, if you're, at a, if you're at a tech company, you're getting a pulse survey every 10 minutes about like, how you doing? How can we make your experience better? In education, we look at the lagging indicator of people leaving the building and leaving the profession. And we need to be more attentive. We need to listen more carefully to educators. We need to equip administrators to do that more effectively. And so I think that's a, a driving motivation as we think about where we go I wanted from here. to just jump in on one of the most impactful aspects of the program is how it starts off. And it is about thriving. It's not just about maintaining baseline. And I think speaking to what we're saying is it's almost like for educators, well, being like plateaued at kind of like the baseline is that should be our good. Like, and then maybe expected to be even suffering a little bit, but to actually thrive yeah. and to actually be in a positive, mm -hmm. like that was refreshing to hear and just uniquely um, impactful for compared to what we normally hear. It's almost like we have a little bit of martyrdom is almost expected with the role. Um, and this yeah. framework really was a new horizon. So I think that all the professional learning experiences were, were recognized in some way. It's so often I find like well-being work happens where someone sends out a PDF and they're like, here are some strategies that you should try on your non-existent free time. You know, <laughs> do, do this mindfulness thing, do this other relaxation technique, but we don't give any systemic reinforcement for participation in that. And so thanks to 
the philanthropic support that we had, we were able to give every educator who took part in this program 500 bucks for taking part. We were able to provide a systemic reinforcement. And other places where we do this work, people give you know, units for salary advancement. People give, um, make it part of the professional learning time that they that teachers are already expected to engage in. But the point is we need to incorporate this into our systems and recognize it. And then the, we fundamentally believe that inter, that personal development happens interpersonally. Like, I don't know about mm-hmm. y'all. I, I don't finish Coursera courses. I've started like three of them. I try to finish them, but I don't finish them. Like, yeah. it, it is when I'm engaging in development experiences with and alongside a group of people with whom I can be real and authentic, that's when I make... Growth. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Union Talk. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and tune in every other week for a new episode. Thank you, be safe, and be well. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sampling from the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 200 labor radio and podcast shows across the country. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Let's go out with Every Stitch, a song from this week's Radio Labor World Report. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now, here are the low-tide drifters with every stitch.
Labor news you can use. I'm Mark Polanche. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.